kicked off our study last week in 1 Corinthians 16 with this question. Are you abounding or stagnating? Are you abounding or stagnating in the work of the Lord? This is from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Uh, and what we did last week was measure yourself. This was your homework. This was what your assignment was for application. Measure yourself by the marks of always abounding in the work of the Lord. I am actively working and laboring on mission in ministry. I am motivated by God's love for others and me in doing the work of the Lord. I am steadfast and immovable in keeping the Lord's mandate for ministry and I am always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord my labors are not in vain. So if you didn't take that evaluation, if you didn't weren't here for that message, you can go online to glenwoodconnection.org. You can download that. You can get that on the podcast. If you go to our Facebook page, you can find that. But let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 28. It's right under that, that heading, Measure Yourself by the Marks of Always Abounding. Let's read that out loud as a class and read that together with me. Are you ready? Oh, let me try that again. Are you ready? Sure, sure great. Okay, let's read it together. Therefore, okay, let's read that together. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. But what areas of ministry are we to always be abounding in? Well, the answer to that is really limitless. Because truly, anything we do to further the gospel, anything we do to fulfill the Great Commission, is considered the work of the Lord. Did a series of on God at work. So I hope you know that as you do your work, whatever it is during the, during the school year, during your work day, what you do for the Lord, and when you do it for Him, God is at work in and through you. But here in chapter 16, I think there's at least nine areas where the Corinthians needed to always be abounding. And I think it's a good place for us to start and look at. Now remember in this last chapter of Corinthians, there's at least 13 commands in here. So this isn't just a wrap-up. This isn't just Paul talking to Corinthians. There's commands... There's things for us to be doing. And as I work through this chapter, I think there's nine, maybe ten, but I've grouped them into four general areas that we're going to look at in the weeks to come, beginning this week. We're to be always abounding in stewardship, in serving, in small group community, and in the sovereign grace of God. So that's what we see in this chapter. But this morning, we're going to look at how to always abound in stewardship. And you say, what is stewardship? That's one of those words we kind of toss around at church, and you need to define it. And it's simply this, managing our God-given resources. That's what stewardship is, managing our God-given resources in light of eternity. And in verses 1 through 9, and that's where we're going to be, chapter 16, 1 through 9, in verses 1 through 9, he gives us at least three areas we need to always be abounding regarding our stewardship. So let's take a look at it. Always abounding in stewardship. The very first area that he gives us is giving. Always abound in giving. And that could just make sense to us in the sense that stewardship is so often related to giving. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Chapter 16. So open your Bibles. Turn your Bible on. Wake your Bible up. And let's look at 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. Notice what it says. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you all also. There's the first command in this chapter. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, and here's the second command, that as he may prosper, so that in that no co collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Now, to understand these verses, the first thing you got to ask is, what is the collection for the saints? 
Because we immediately think, when you hear that, you think of the offering. You know, Gwen just every week is very faithful to help us take the offering down here. Upstairs we take an offering. Is that what he's talking about? Well, not exactly. Ever since the famine in Jerusalem, which is mentioned in Acts 11, uh, Paul had made a commitment to the believers in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians predominantly in Jerusalem. He had made a, a commitment to always remember the poor. And the reason they were poor, more than likely, is they had various famines that had really hit Judea during that time. And here are these new believers who, in a sense, are separated uh, because they've uh, identified with Christ. So they've lost some connections. Some of them have lost jobs. Uh, there was great persecution at that time, thanks to uh, uh, the Apostle Paul before he was saved. And so they were in great need. And one of the most important things that Paul did on his third missionary journey, besides plant churches, was to take up this offering, which is really a relief fund, a relief offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And he sought to get all the Gentile churches that he was planting and discipling, he wanted them to give of their resources in order to help the poor in Jerusalem. And very quickly, let me give you three reasons why this offering was important. And the reason I say this is it's mentioned in Romans. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. There's two chapters on it in 2 Corinthians. It's mentioned in Acts. Why is this so important? Well, there's, there's at least three reasons. His goal was to promote unity between Jew and Gentile in this present age. The church is one body in Christ. And as he went to the Gentiles, he wanted to make sure the Jewish believers knew that there isn't a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And here's how he says it in Romans 15. When he's talking to the Romans, he says, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, that would be Gentile regions, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. In other words, the gospel had come through the Jews, through Jesus Christ who was Jewish, and now it was going to all nations, to Gentiles like us, and out of a spiritual indebtedness, they need to show, look, we are one body in Christ. So just because Paul was the Gentile or the missionary to the Gentiles didn't mean that the body of Christ was divided Jew and Gentile and this collection was going to show that. The second reason was to picture the fulfillment in the future age of what would literally take place in the millennial kingdom. There's all sorts of uh, predictions in the Old Testament of how the Gentile nations would be bringing their riches to King Jesus in his millennial kingdom. And I really believe that Paul is here saying, look, that's what's going to happen in the future. We want to picture that now as the riches of Gentile believers flows back into Jerusalem. Paul uh, was keeping this promise to remember the poor, and he was demonstrating to his Gentile mission, to his Gentile churches, that the church age did not replace God's promises to Israel in the future. Someday this is literally going to happen where the nations pour in their glory, their riches into Jerusalem. But the third reason, and the one that is directly applicable to, to you and I, is he wanted this offering to give an opportunity to his churches to abound, to abound in giving. So I want you to turn your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I want to read, look at verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. I want you to see that I'm not just imposing this idea of abounding in giving on 1 Corinthians 16, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, here's what he says to them. A year later, they still, hadn't, they, they still weren't abounding just yet. You're not going to abound in giving overnight, but we do need to abound in giving. So let's look at verse 7. But just as you abound, there's our word, just as you abound in everything, 
in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in, in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also, or literally this act of grace also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Giving is always motivated by grace, empowered by grace, and motivated by love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this manner, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, isn't that us so oftentimes? We desire to do the work of the Lord, but we don't always follow through. So there may also be completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. It's this meeting of needs. For the glory of God. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about giving just in 1 Corinthians 16. So go back there, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. But I just want to make two observations. And here's the first observation. There are many opportunities to always abound in giving in the Bible. That's why you can abound, because there's always opportunity. There are many opportunities. And I've listed five of them there. I've given you scriptures that you can look up, that you can see. I just wanted to get you to see that we tend, when we think of giving at church, what do we usually think of? We usually think of the offering. There. Okay. You know, and it takes a lot of energy to get to that point. And then when we get to that point, we're like, okay, the plate's been passed. Done. Right? Or in this day and age, I hit the button and I did my online giving and now it's done. But the reality is there's many, many ways to give through the church. And, and the first is giving to honor the Lord on the first day of the week, which Paul mentions here in verse two. And that is a tithe. It is 10%. It's a biblical pattern before the law, during the law, and after the law. And it's just the place to start. But if you're going to abound in giving, you can't stop there. You don't stop there. You go on to two, three, four, five. And our giving supports, our pastors, our teachers, our support people in the office. There's giving to support missionaries and the furtherance of the gospel. We can pray for the Sullivans, but without giving, they're not going to stay there. Without giving, we can't host 27 people here at the end of August. That takes money. We're providing all the lunches. We've provided five of the rooms. That's giving to missions so that they can be trained. Uh, giving to relief needs. That's what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 16. Famine, flood, earthquake, tsunami. We've had all of that and more in the last 10 years. And so, And in those disasters... When they touch your life, you understand how much immediate giving is needed. And then giving to others out of love due to fellowship and outreach. That's why our benevolence fund at Christmas. And just recently we took a, another offering just to help family in our church. Fellowship, friendship, outreach. That's what it's all about. Now, let me just say, when you look at those five things, those who are always abounding in giving... See it as a lifestyle, not a once-a-week act, not something that's one and done. Those who abound in giving, it's a lifestyle, and they're always looking for and seeing these opportunities. It's what we do. We give because we're givers, and we give because our Lord and our God were givers and are givers. And He is the owner of all that I have. Those who are always abounding in giving, do not ask, will we give when these opportunities show up? Those who abound in giving ask what? 
How much will we give? You know, it's kind of a done deal. I'm going to abound in giving. We're going to give. The question is how much. And sometimes when we've been greatly blessed and, and we have it, we can give much. Sometimes we're going to give little. But we want to abound in giving. So there's many opportunities. The second observation I want you to see is that there's many principles. Many principles for always abounding in giving. And so just from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, here are, what do I have here? Seven, do I have seven, five, seven? Yeah, uh, for abounding in giving. And these are basic. We're not going to go deep in these. I just want you to realize that right out of this passage, here's what you can do. So here's the first one. Give as an act of worship. Give as an act of worship in submission to the lordship of your risen Savior. Man, that's what verses 1 and 2 are all about. Do you realize that 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 flow right out of 1 Corinthians 15 that we have been studying? The motivation for giving. Listen, when you abound in giving, you're saying to the world, I understand who the Lord is and I understand who the owner is of all things. And you give as an act of worship. That's why even though we take upstairs our offering at the end of our worship service, it's still an act of worship. And that's what you want. The first day of the week. My Lord is risen. I'm giving it to Him. I'm giving it for His purposes. So you want to ask yourself, how regular and consistent is my giving? The first day of the week. And doesn't matter, online, all these different options that we have with more technology. But the point is, am I consistent in it? Just as I should be consistent in my worship. One of my favorite profs at Dallas Seminary used to say this, I have a regular time for washing my face, combing my hair, dressing and brushing my teeth. I do not have a regular time for washing my car. It shows. Giving is like that. If it's not done regularly, it doesn't get done. And that brings us to principle number two, give in a systematic manner. Give in a systematic manner. Everywhere in the Old Testament, everywhere in the New Testament, giving is planned, it has goals, and it has a way to know when those goals are reached. In other words, there's evaluation, there's a plan, there's a system. And you can't read. You can't read verses 1 and 4 and not see that giving is systematic in that passage, okay? Um, I'm sure you've heard the saying, plan to work, then work your plan. Well, basically what Paul's saying in the Corinthians here is plan to give and then give according to your plan. So I guess what I'm asking you today is, what's your system for giving and how's it working? What's your system and how is it working? If we were as systematic in giving to the Lord and His church as we want our employer to be in paying our wages, I promise you the work of the Lord would never lack for abundance of funds. Think about that. Number three, give using a percentage. Give using a percentage. He says, um, on the first day of the every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. In proportion, a percentage. And this is so important because no matter how poor we are, no matter how rich we are, everybody can give a percentage. Amen? And guess what? When the income goes down, you can still give that same percentage. You're giving less because your income's down. Or when your income goes up, you can still give that percentage and you'll be giving more. In fact, one of the presidential candidates in the recent GOP debate mentioned the tithe and, and, and said outright, I think God is a pretty fair God and knows what he's doing. And, and it was just, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I don't know if anybody knew what he was talking about, but I got it and uh, I heard it. So there you go. Um, so plan to give proportionally on what God has given you. Now, it's not just according... See, we immediately think, okay, give as God has given me. I look at my paycheck, and this, you know, then I give proportionally. But listen, I've already read from Romans 15. It's not just in proportion to what God gives you materially. We really need to be giving in proportion to what God has done for us spiritually. See, the fact of the matter is, in this very room, Many of you give far more beyond what God has done for you materially because you have a deep 
and growing grasp of what God has done for you spiritually. And out of gratitude for what He has done for you spiritually, you give and abound and are always abounding in giving. So, the question is, did I sincerely pray about what my percentage was going to be for this year? And am I still abounding in giving that amount? Or have I grown in how much I give? Number four, give according to God's grace. You say, how can I do this? You've got to do it by God's grace. And I already read 2 Corinthians 8, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who became poor that we may be rich. That same God can give you the desire and the doing of your giving. And that's the bottom line. When we don't give, we're just saying, I don't have God's grace active in my life. I may claim to know Him, but His grace is not active because giving is motivated by grace, and grace motivates us to give. I like this illustration. There's three kinds of givers, the flint, the sponge, and the honeycomb. To get anything out of the flint, you got to hammer it, and you get only chips and sparks. To get water out of the sponge, you must squeeze it, and the more you squeeze, the more you get. But when it comes to the honeycomb, it just overflows with its own sweetness and willingness and readiness to give. Are you flint? Are you sponge? Are you honeycomb? Number five, when you're the honeycomb, you get to go, you give joyfully, not grudgingly. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Listen, if you give with a grudge, with a, with a oh, I don't want to do this, well, I'd encourage you to go ahead and give. God can use your money, okay? Any way you give it. But you're so missing out on the joy of giving. The joy of giving is being a conduit for the what God pours in is meant to pour out to the various people in need. And then number six, give through the local church with integrity and accountability. I like what he says in verses three and four. He's talking about accountability. He's talking about integrity. He's saying, look, I'm going to come take money from you. Okay, I'm going to collect money from you to go and take it somewhere else. But look, you can send people with me. And you get to choose who goes with me. That's accountability. That's integrity. And that comes through giving through the local church. Yes, they were purposing in their heart. Yes, they were saving things up at home. But at the end of the day, it was going to be brought to the church, through the church, and taken to another church and dispersed to individuals in need. And here's what giving through the local church does. Whether you do that by envelope, by online, or by mail, what it does is it provides accountability to the church for the use of those funds, but it also provides accountability to you as a giver. You say, well, I don't like anybody knowing what I do. Well, that's all right, but we're giving to the Lord as God's people. And here's the, here's the bottom line. Integrity never fears or shies away from accountability. Integrity never does. Oh, you want to see? Okay, there it is. See, that's what it is. And that's, that's what it does. So, so those statements you get, that helps you. It helps me to see, well, where are we? Oh, I thought I was here, but really I'm kind of, I've missed some. And so it provides accountability. And then finally, seven, give thankfully. Give thankfully for God's glory. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 15. For the administration of this service that is this collection, not only supplies the needs of the saints, yeah, it meets needs, but also is abundant through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. Giving is a reflection of true belief. And it gives glory to God. And people give thanks to God for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of this exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Giving glorifies God when done out of a heart motivated by love 
energized by grace, given through the local church to meet needs for the, for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Jerry, come on up here. I know you're eager to, to share. Jerry is someone who abounds in giving and is always abounding in giving. And I wanted him to tell you who knows what's on your heart. I'm, I'm ready for it, Jerry. I wrote it down so I wouldn't drift. <laughs> so, um, basically, everything I've got to say, he's already said. But from a practical stand, I'm a practical person. I have to have examples. And abounding is a scary word. I, I tend to think more that Vicki and I have been blessed to be successful in growing our giving. Um, but there's three things that it's taken in our life. One of those is motivation, one is strategic decisions, and one is a plan. And I don't think you can get one or two of those to work without all three. And in my life, motivation, um, I mean, God tells us to give. You know, that's in the Bible. So you give based on command up to a point, and you feel like, okay, I've satisfied that. I think to go beyond, to grow your giving, you've got to look inside for a real motivation. And as my relationship with God grew, I began to realize what his grace had done for me. Not just salvation, but what he's given me in life. The place he, place he allowed me to be born. You know, the ultimate thing that I had no control over. Just the sovereign grace of God blessed me beyond what you know, I'll ever deserve or be able to repay. And I've found that giving out of gratitude far exceeds giving out of command. And the motivation of gratitude has been the key in, in mine and Vicki's life in giving. Uh, but secondly, strategic decisions. It's one thing to be motivated, but if you don't have money to give, you know, if you don't find it, it's, motivation kind of dies away because motivation's an emotion, basically. But strategic decisions, we just need to evaluate our lives. And I, I, yes, this impacts big things like, hey, how much am I going to spend on rent, house payment, what kind of car? But there's a lot of little daily things we do that when I was a young man, I began to evaluate those. When I first became motivated to grow in giving, I began evaluating just daily things. And I realized that going out to lunch every day with a couple of buddies at work was costing this much money. And if I would take my lunch every day, well, I could save a pretty big chunk of that money. And so I committed to taking my lunch every day. And now, you know, that... That has changed over time. You know, when I was in my 20s, it was two sandwiches, some chips, a cookie, and this, you know. Age doing what it does, it is now one sandwich, carrot sticks, and a piece of fruit. But, you know, it's still the basic concept. The concept is that money that I saved, I calculated and said, okay, it's about that much, and I added that to my giving. I said, God, I commit to give that. And that's just an example. We all could find things in our life. Vicki and I have found many other things as we've worked on that. But our decisions need to be, be involved. But if we don't have a plan, those decisions are going to, I mean, life happens. School comes. You know, you get back-to-school expenses with kids. You have all the expenses in school. Some of you have that looming specter of college expense coming. Some of you are living that expense. Uh, Medical bills added. I mean, if you make a strategic decision, say, okay, I can save this much money a week by doing my lunch or stopping vending machines or whatever, but then these other expenses come up, they're going to take that money. That's just how we work. That's how life is. So you have to have a plan, and our plan is a written budget. And we, we write out, hey, based on our income, this is what we're going to give. And when our paycheck comes in, that's what we give. We give based on that budget, not based on how we feel about what's going on at the time. And that has been the big key in our life, is being regular because we have a budget, it's written, it's planned, and it's not something we debate every paycheck. It's something that's there. And uh, a few years ago, we even started, okay, this is what we're going to give every, every month based on our paycheck, but we're also going to set a little more aside for special gifts. So when there is a special need, when there is something comes up, we're not scrambling trying to find, okay, well, where can we, we have money that we can give out of. And that, is, that has revolutionized a lot of things in our life 
as far as being able and free to give. And to just say that, sometimes that's scary. There have been years we've looked back at the year and we go, well, how did this add up? <laughs> how did we do all of this in the last year? And it's just the grace of God. As we commit to him, he commits to us. And he will do amazing things. There's a, there's a saying I've heard ever since I was a little kid, and it's always just sounded kind of cliche. But when you really stop and think about it, it has proven true in our lives. And that is, you cannot outgive God. Yeah. I saw that. I knew that was going to happen. Good job. Good job. And that's so true. Two things um, out of what Jerry just shared. Uh, first of all, is uh, it's so practical, right? It's just it, it, giving. You know, it's it, it, it just these are the things you got to do. You can pray. You can be moved by the Spirit. I hope you're motivated today. But at the end of the day, you got to have a plan. You got to be systematic. Do what what Paul is even saying to the church. And basically, Jerry, what you shared was exactly what Paul said. Set aside ahead of time so that when I come, there will be the funds there. So here's the application. The challenge uh, for us is in September with the theft of these air conditioners, we've had to replace those air conditioners. And we have insurance, but we have to pay the, the uh, deductible. But the bigger issue is the cages, which are outstanding cages and yet $10,000 to protect that. And so we're taking special offering in September to replace those funds that we have taken out of our savings. And so I'm encouraging you now, set aside, look for ways. Jerry just gave you a very practical way. Look for ways to begin setting aside funds here in August to be always abounding in giving. In September, we're taking this collection. And I'm praying personally, and I would love for you to pray with me, that we get over 10000 that that we are just going to abound in the grace of giving. So there is direct application. I've given you at least five different other areas where you can abound, so there you go. Now, the second area that I want us to look at is this. Always abound in hospitality. Always abound in hospitality. Now, hospitality is just a specific form of giving. When we talk, the first point we talked about giving, that's giving your resources away to meet needs. Hospitality is sharing your resources with others. It's not so much you give it away as you invite others in, into your home, into your life, into your resources, and you share those resources and you are hospitable to them. And we see this in verses 5 through 7 as Paul invites himself into the homes of the Corinthians. Look at verses 5 through 7. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. You know, you love those kind of guests, right? Hey, I'm coming over. And by the way, I think I'll stay the winter, okay? So that you may, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Now, written all over those verses is hospitality. If they don't open their hearts, and by the way, if, if, if you've read all of Corinthians, the issue was they were closing their hearts to him. The letter was written so that they may open their hearts to him. And the proof that they will open their hearts is that they will open their homes. And they will welcome this ambassador of Christ, this representative of the risen Lord, and they will be hospitable to him. Uh, so hospitality is just a, a, it's an extension of giving. In fact, listen to Romans 12. 11 through 13. Listen to Romans 12. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervor, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribula, tribulation, devoted to prayer. And then he says, contributing to the needs of the saints, always abounding in giving, practicing hospitality, always abounding in hospitality. So again, let me make two points, two observations. The first observation I want to make is that hospitality is always essential to furthering gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission. 
Sometimes we forget about this. We need missionaries. We need money for to send missionaries. We need the Word of God that missionaries can preach. But the bottom line is, without hospitality, the, the gospel doesn't spread. And back then, you didn't have Motel 6. You didn't have Hyatt Place. You didn't have hotels. You literally, if you came to a town and the inns were dangerous, filled with, with prostitution, thievery, uh, you know, what do you just people trying to cheat you out of your money and your and your belongings? It wasn't safe to stay at what little ends there were, and so basically, if you didn't have a friend in that city, you were in big trouble. And so, as these missionaries, these teachers, these these traveling uh, uh, teachers would come around, if if God's people didn't open their hearts and their homes. They had no place to live, and they were living from town to town. And so it's essential to furthering the gospel. You say, well, today, you know, we have more resources, we have more... No, it's still the same way. When our missionaries come here in October, they need a place to stay. And they need a good place to stay. And we're going to see in a moment those principles. And if we don't are not hospitable... But now in the old days... Uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you, we would keep missionaries in home. But more and more, they prefer that space and that time. Am I right? Listen, when you stay... yeah, <laughs> Remain silent. <laughs> Nothing you say can or will use against you. Uh, the reality is this. When you're staying in someone's home, no matter how hospitable you may be, as a guest, you've got to be on edge. And you've got to be... And instead of getting the rest... And getting the relaxation that you need, you're actually you're, you're being stayed up all night. They're asking you questions. You're being entertained in weird and bizarre ways, I promise you. I traveled with a missions team in college, and I can tell you stories. Not as good as what Jordan and Nikki can, but I have stories. And, and you're, 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 in a sense, it's work. Okay, So what we do is we go up to Hyatt Place and we put our missionaries up there. And it is a great place at a great price for us as good stewards. But it's a great accommodation. It's where these, uh, uh, as many as these guests that are coming in August have chosen to stay. That's where they're going to stay. And it's essential. They need these places. Well, I, there's a lot I could say here. Uh, out of the 22 qualifications for a pastor... Uh, both Timothy and Titus mentioned being hospitable. It's essential to ministry and furthering the gospel. And all of God's people are expected. Now, the key word in this passage is in verse 6. Send me on my way. And then he says it again concerning Timothy in verse 11. Look at verse 11. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way. Now, that big phrase in English is one word in the Greek. And it means to send forward, to help and to move forward. I love this word. It's all over the New Testament. It's all over used by Paul. He mentions it to the Romans, to the Corinthians twice. Uh, he, he tells Titus in the churches at Crete, uh, to send people on their way. Now, that sounds like send them packing. That's not the idea, okay? The idea is to give them the resources, the traveling companions, the money, whatever it is they need to go from point A to point B. We want to send them forward on their way, which, of course, for Christians, that means on the mission of fulfilling the Great Commission. Amen? So when these 27 people come at the end of August, we want them to leave Glenwood being refreshed, uh, trained by Richard Lewis, but we want to send them forward. With, so think of this word for me, momentum for the mission. You know, I'm motivated. Okay, see, you know, Laura had some Mary Kay motivation. A lot of Mary Kay motivation. Recently, Isn't that right? And the whole point was to send you forward on that mission of sending cosmetics. And as important that is for her job, and as important that is for ladies to paint the barn if it needs painting, they should have had me speak. I could have been a motivational speaker right there. Hey, as important that is, there's something even greater and more important, and is that's getting the gospel. And we need to motivate and send forward on that mission. Amen? And so that's what hospi hospitality is about. Now, Second observation is this. 
Hospitality is the result of an open heart to God that results in an open home to others. That's the bottom line. Hospitality is the result of an open heart to God that results in an open heart home to others. And the open heart that is always abounding has these seven characteristics. And these are just passages on hospitality. This is what must be in your heart if you are going to show hospitality and if we as a church are going to be hospitable to guests, to one another, and especially to our missionaries as they come through. Number one, be hospitable with a servant's heart. See that they lack nothing. In Titus, uh, Paul says, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And then immediately he says this, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Listen, it's a servant's heart. It's a servant's heart. You got to pick up the towel and you got to say, what, what can I do to help? Number two, be hospitable with a diligent heart. I like what he says. He says, diligently help them. Be passionate in the work of hospitality. Listen, there's nothing worse than grudgingly being served by someone. You ever had a waiter, waitress, who was not passionate about waiting on you in a restaurant? You're like, you know what? Just don't come back. I'll go in the kitchen. I'll get my own. Just promise me you don't come back to my table. It's obvious you don't want to wait on me. You don't want to serve me. You ever had that? But the great waiter, the great, the, the person that's passionate about serving you, first of all, as you, I've told you, I tell them, you're my hero. And they just beam. They light up. Listen, you got to be passionate. Half-hearted hospitality is not hospitality. Number three, be hospitable with a worshipful heart. In 3 John, he says, you will do well to send them on their way, there's our key word, in a manner worthy of God. Treat them in a manner worthy of God. If Jesus would show up, which by the way, when you read the theology of hospitality, Hebrews says you may be entertaining angels and... The bottom line is Jesus never had a place to stay or to lay his head. We are, we are serving and hospitable to Jesus when we're hospitable to his people. And it just reflects our heart for him. It reflects our heart for him. Number four, be hospitable with a loving heart. Always do it out of love for God and others. Uh, I just preached on 1 Corinthians 13. You can be as hospitable as you want to be, but if it doesn't come from love, it profits nothing. It profits nothing. I won't re-preach that, but I could give you 3 John 5, 1 Peter 4, Hebrews 13. All mention hospitality, and every verse mentions love. It's all out of a heart of love. Number five, be hospitable with an obedient heart. Hosting like this makes us co-workers with the truth. You just can't get away from hospitality as a command, and when we do it, we're obedient. We need an obedient heart. Number six, be hospitable with a missional heart. Do it to send them forward on their mission. Do it out of a motivation and a love for the gospel. And then number seven, be hospitable with a glorifying heart. Do it all to the glory of God. You know, it's not, it's not by chance that in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says to the Corinthians, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't it interesting? Eating and drinking was some of the Corinthians' greatest areas of sin and selfishness. And hospitality has to do with eating and drinking and providing that. And we do it all to the glory of God. Hospitality always has one goal that sets it apart from merely entertaining people. Send them forward on their mission in a manner worthy of God to the glory of God. So Dana begged me for an opportunity to be up here, and I said, Dana, come on up and uh, come. And um, she said, I, I'd like to do this at least every other week. And I said, well, let's back off. Let's just do it today and see how this goes. Isn't that right, Dana? Yeah, just about, just about. Uh, so I want to talk to Dana. She's always abounding in hospitality. 
And so, Dana, what's the biggest blessing from hospitality in general, in hosting a grow group in specific? Okay. So I'll try to be a little bit funny. I have no business in a five-star restaurant. I don't have manners. I don't know how to sit at a table. I, 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 but I do know how to make people feel comfortable. So it is my joy to bring people into my home and to make them feel like they can kick their feet up and open the refrigerator and get comfortable and I enjoy doing that. So um, I had one other thing, but I forgot it because I'm standing in front of people. Give me one second. <laughs> so what's the biggest blessing out of it? That I, that I get to make people feel comfortable. That's, I, I enjoy bringing people into my home and having them have a place where they're not on edge. And, you know, especially people with children, I, I have a I have a kid-friendly house, so they can send their kids off and run. And if somebody spills something, we clean it up and we move on. And that's it's. That's and what's my the joy. blessing for your uh, hosting a grow group? You said you had a, a specific uh, reason you liked hosting grow group. At oh, <laughs> selfishly, I don't have to pack my two five-year-olds into a house and chase them around someone <laughs> else's house and make sure they don't trash it. That's good, good. So what's the hardest thing about this? I know you abound in it, but this is the work of the Lord, and hospitality is work. So what's the the hardest thing? Okay, so abounding is a terrible word. I I keep doing it. I don't, at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, I am never happy that I host small group. My, my house is messy almost all the time, and it gets cleaned up for people to come over. That's, that's how it works. So at 2 o'clock, I don't want to go home and clean my house. My kids do not want to go home and clean my house. Um, but I, I, at 10 o'clock on Sunday nights is what we live for, is that we enjoyed having the people at our house and that everyone grew together and... And now my house is clean, so that's cool, too. Um, Okay, so the other hard thing is that my kids, it's an uphill battle to train our kids to do anything because we live in a consumer world, and they want to stare at their electronic devices either up on the screen or in their hand. You know, they don't want to give anything, so they just want to live for themselves and so hosting a small group means that two two hours out on a Sunday, my kids are cleaning and getting their and every inch of my house has to be ready because our group is not small. So there's you know the men are splitting up into rooms to pray, the women are splitting up downstairs. Every inch has to be ready for people, and so my kids don't want to do that, and I have to press them to do that, and it's a battle constantly. But it's I I believe it's a battle worth fighting. So so how do you keep doing this? How okay. do you keep abounding? Because <laughs> so, you are abounding, even though you don't think you are. Um, my husband is teaching me to simultaneously lower my standards and raise them at the same time. So I want it to be perfect. I want everyone to think that I keep a great, clean house, and, and I don't. <laughs> and um, But I'm learning that my house needs to be comfortable and it needs to be filled with grace, and it needs to be ready for people. And so if they walk into a room that's not perfect, I need to be okay with that. And so, But that is how I'm keeping going, is learning to grow in that. Um, two is I know that um, I've got a 15-year-old son who is sitting in, a, in his own bedroom sometimes with real men teaching him how to pray, teaching him how to confess sin, teaching him how to be a Christ follower. And when he's laying in his bed at night and he is weighed down by the, by the depth of his depravity, I'm hoping that he is remembering the people that were in our home and have confessed that sin and have, have rejoiced in God's forgiveness. So that's... Amen. Let's give Dana a hand. You can stay up here if you want. All right, good stuff. Now, listen, here's the application. It comes down to this. There's tons of opportunities. Two things I want to hit with, and the first is the child care for the double-time training. Listen, Richard and I were praying, hoping for 10 people. We've got 27 coming. That is a great. This room is going to be filled three days with new missionaries, with 30-year-old veteran missionaries, with our own missionary, Anna Marie West, Jordan, Nikki, and like Jordan and Nikki, there's seven kids that need to be cared for. 
And I don't want, this is from five, uh, eight in the morning to five at night. And so it's a big day. It's a long day. And I already got some great women volunteering. I got some, a man taking off work to do this. Hospitality. Hey, come on. You know, it's easy. You've written the checks. We're paying for the lunches. But now the hospitality is the diligence, the working, the caring for these kids. So the sign up is right there. Let's fill this thing up. And if we all do our part, no one has to be burdened. You know, and these are all young kids. Second thing is uh, hosting a grow group. Okay, their group is large because I can't get a leader to and a host to start another group. And I can't do that. I can't make that happen. All I can do is make the ask. And for two years, I've been making the ask. But I need some leaders and I need some hosts to step up and start a group. If you don't like a group being large, then you need to be praying about being a leader and being a host. And so that we can have a small, uh, have another uh, group. Amen. Makes sense. That, I mean, that's all I can do. All I can do is tell you. Here it is. Always abounding in hospitality. And then the third for Jeff, they're looking for drivers for Sunday morning. You don't have to drive every Sunday morning, but that literally is sending them on their way, picking them up and bringing them to hear the gospel and then taking them home. Amen. And I know uh, here's a couple right here that has benefited from that. Uh, because they need a car. Emmanuel's starting his PhD here this week. And so there's tons of opportunities, but we have to be always abounding. Amen. Isn't that good? I'm so thankful. Aren't you thankful for Jerry and Dana being willing to share their lives? And believe me, there's plenty of you that could give testimony on giving, plenty on hospitality. These two people demanded the opportunity, and so I had to give it to them. Amen. All right, there's more to come in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father, application, it's time to apply. And by your grace, it's so wonderful to hear from your people that grace, that love, that obedience is what motivates and moves. And Father, may we take advantage of the things that you are doing in our midst, but we need to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.